Okay, so let me pray first, ask God to really help me and bless our time together, okay? Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for your wonderful blessings, and thank you for the union that we have with Christ, who is our all-sufficient Savior and King, and we thank you that we have been enriched uh, in Him, Lord, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And Father, we thank you for the work of our Savior. We thank you for His coming. We thank you for His dying and His rising again. Thank you for His triumph uh, over the grave. Thank you that because of Him, uh, we have a hope that is reserved for us in heaven, and that when everything is shaken, that can be shaken, we have a kingdom that is unshakable. And we thank you for the hope that we have in Him. So bless our time, Lord. Please aid us and help us as we continue to study the life of Christ and the Spirit of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So that's exactly what we're doing. We've been talking about the Spirit of Christ and focusing right now with Old Testament pro- uh, prophecy. So uh, we're going to continue to look at that. Um, and I've just been writing different terms up on the board, uh, different texts up on the board that are going to hopefully help us with this. But let me begin by saying this, that the same level of intimacy that we see uh, between the Father and the Son uh, can be subscribed to the Spirit. So, for example, let me just read you some of these. While you're in Ezekiel, I'll read some of these passages out of John that stress uh, this sort of, maybe you'll see this in certain Let me just write this so you don't forget. This is vocab for you to study. You make flashcards and take it home, okay? Uh, But uh, maybe... uh, 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 No, that's that's, that's the wrong spelling. Uh, You've heard of Trinitarian? Well, a lot of theologians like to speak of binitarian passages, okay? Why? Because there's only two members of the Godhead that are being uh, talked about in the passage or in that theology. And so when we think of the Gospel of John, for example, uh, probably the most predominant binitarian relationship is going to be the Father uh, and the Son relationship, okay? And so uh, uh, there is the Spirit and the Son, and that's what we're going to focus on. But there is a lot of emphasis between Father and Son. But it's the nature of the relationship that we care about. Uh, for example, listen to what it says in John five nineteen. It says, Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself. And see, immediately in our minds, what we're tempted to think when we hear a passage like that is like, wait a minute, you know, how can Jesus say he can do nothing? Of it? You know, we immediately go to the place of his omnipotence, um, right? So we think, well, wait a minute, if Jesus is God, then he can do anything. Why is the Bible saying he can do nothing of himself? So immediately we approach the text in some polemical, apologetical way. But that's not what Jesus is even talking about. You know, he's talking about uh, really his messianic mission and how that his mission is not independent of the Father, for example. So he says, unless it is something he sees the Father doing, and that's... You know, so, so, so then we have to think about, what do you mean he sees the Father doing something, right? And then later he says he hears the Father saying. Uh, so unless he hears the Father or sees the Father, he doesn't do it. It's like, what's that language even talking about? I don't know that we'll settle that here, but in some form, in some fashion, it refers to the fact that Jesus only moves in harmony with the things that have been decreed uh, by the Father, 
for him as the Messiah. He says, for whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. Uh, Chapter 5, verse 30. I can do nothing of my own initiative. As I hear, I would say from the Father, I judge and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So there connecting us with what he sees, what he hears, what he does, connected to the mission of the Son, right, as Messiah, sent on covenantal mission by the Father. Uh, Chapter 8, verse 16, even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone, but I am the Father who sent me. Again, Jesus in uh, chapter 8, verse 28, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and I do nothing of my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And the concept of the Father teaching the Son, where is, uh, there's a lot of Old Testament passages that, uh, that, that, that speak to this, especially like I'm thinking of uh, Isaiah chapter uh, 50, where there the, the Father and the Son, the servant of the Lord, uh, uh, you know, instructs the son and t- talks to the son and speaks. It's just amazing, fascinating what's written in the Old Testament. But um, I'm just speeding through these because it's not my, not my main point. Uh, verse 38, I speak the things which I have seen, my f- seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your father. So there Jesus just speaking and stressing this interdependent relationship between the father and the son. And my point is to say that that same interdependent relationship applies between the spirit and Christ, that they are co, uh, uh, you know, in a sense, co-workers in the work of redemption at every stage, at every step of the way. Now, that's why I've stressed that Uh, The ministry of the Messiah is the ministry of the Spirit. Just as much as the ministry of the Messiah was the ministry of the Father, it is also the ministry of the Spirit. Um, Okay, before we go to Ezekiel, quickly, I want want to take you to Isaiah 11. So, sorry. At least you know where you're going next. Isaiah chapter 11, because uh, this has to do with the Spirit's involvement in Jesus' uh, kingship. Okay? Uh, that when the Spirit, as we learned last week um, uh, with, with different texts, but like Isaiah uh, 61, verses 1 to 3, uh, also uh, Isaiah, let's say, 42, I think it's verses 1 through 4, many of these texts that speak of the Spirit of God uh, endowing the Son of God, right? Uh, what is that concept of endowing or of anointing uh, when Jesus says in Isaiah, you know, quoting Isaiah 61 uh, there uh, in Luke uh, chapter 4, I think it is, where he says, uh, you know, the spirit of the Lord is upon me right, because he has anointed me, right? And uh, we're going to get to this uh, later as we look at the New Testament um, eventually. Uh, but in the New Testament, we're going to see that the spirit actually anoints uh, Christ as prophet, priest, and king. So his threefold office is part of the Spirit's work uh, in the Messiah. And so uh, Isaiah 11, beginning in verse 1, all of this has to do with eschatology, really, because it, uh, Old Testament eschatology. Um, yeah, I'll come back to this in a minute, but uh, listen to what it says. It says. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, that shoot 
which is basically synonymous later with uh, the branch that will also be uh, that will be given. Uh, the branch is the Messiah, Zechariah chapter six verse twelve. Um, you know, so many different places that speak of the branch of the Lord, right? Isaiah chapter 4, all kinds of different places. But it says, you know, uh, in other words, a descendant will come from the Davidic line, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. So right there, we see the connection that the Spirit of the Lord is resting upon who? The Davidic son who is king. And so the purpose of the Spirit endowing the Son of God is for his kingship, is his kingly anointing. It's to declare him king. And so when the Spirit of God came upon the kings of Israel, it was a symbol of his anointing. When they were anointed with oil, uh, when they read certain passages at their coronation, all of that was symbolic that the Spirit was anointing these men for the purpose of kingship. And so that's what's going on in the anointing passage of Luke chapter 4, verse 18 and following is that the Spirit is coming to anoint Jesus as king. And notice what he will do for him. The spirit of wisdom will be given to him and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. That's really interesting there because Jesus uh, is the perfect prototypical Christian, the the prototypical righteous man who fears God, right? Does not fear man, but fears God. Uh, He will not judge by what... Uh, he sees nor make a decision uh, by what he uh, his ears hear, meaning he's not influenced by the uh, the circumstances uh, surrounding him, uh, the things that men say or what is only known by appearance. But his judgment is true. But with righteousness, he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Wow, so it's kind of like, wow, fast-forwarding. Talk about eschatology. I mean, fast-forwarding there to the actual wrath of the Lamb, right? The, the wrath, huh? Sure, yeah, absolutely. All the Revelation passages that speak of Jesus coming, the sword proceeding out of his mouth and, you know, slaying the wicked. I mean, uh, amazing. So, and then he says, also righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness. So there you can see all kinds of attributes that are given to uh, the, the, the Messiah by virtue of the ministry of the Spirit. And so the Spirit comes upon Christ in kingly anointing, and he endows him with all of these virtues, right? And, and assists him in this. It's almost like nobody walked in the Spirit more than Jesus, <laughs> right? Uh, if my daughter was in here, I'd ask her to recite the fruit of the Spirit because uh, she does. And when she gets to self-control, self-control! <laughs> it's just like, it's like, yes, what we need, <laughs> you know, uh, but nobody uh, walked in the fruit of the spirit uh, more uh, than the Messiah. Uh, and so that's what he comes to do. And um, also, uh, as we look at the prophets, I said this a long time ago, and probably none of you remember. Uh, it's like one of those details, you know, only I would remember or whatever. But you have these Old Testament themes kingdom, temple, Uh, what else, land, thank you, Landon, Landon, no, I'm joking, (laughs) right, kingdom, temple, land, you have all of these uh, redemptive themes that are initially found in the patriarchs, right, and when they come 
in the patriarchs, you know, these are very uh, primitive ideas. Uh, for example, uh, Abraham, right? Abraham, go out. I'm going to show you the land. You know, I want you to look to the east, to the west, to the north, to the south. I want you to look all around. Do a whole 360, and everywhere that you look is going to be yours, right? And I told you that what that is indicative of, I believe, is eschatology, that, at, at, that, that, that you know, that Abraham was told to look north, east, west, and south, just as Hebrews chapter 11, we are told that they were looking for a heavenly country. And so I think, typologically, Abraham was, was in a sense, made to perform this sort of ritual of looking to the west and north, uh, uh, indicative of the heavenly land that will be a cosmic encompassing a promised land and will not just be confined to the borders of Palestine. It will be a global cosmic uh, land of God. And so all these ideas, uh, what about kingdom? Well, well, for example, I mean, we can go all the way back to Genesis to speak of the kingdom, but you know what I mean? If you go to, um, if you go to uh, Abraham again, Ab- Abraham is told, what is I think in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, that says that kings will come forth from uh, 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 from Abraham and and all of those Abrahamic promises are picked up by the kingdom of Israel right and apply directly to uh, the kingdom people right as the outworking of the Abrahamic covenant for example and also the temple you have all these temple themes but guess why I'm doing all this because as you move from the patriarchs to the prophets okay guys then all of these things become, in a sense, prophetic. So, uh, prophets, uh, no, that's not, even, that's not even the right word. That's not even the right word. But they become, uh, let's just say, eschatology. Everybody see that clear as mud up there? Right? And so, now, the kingdom is no longer even to be conceived along the typological lines. Now the kingdom, the temple, the land. So for example, when the temple reaches the prophets, you're looking at Ezekiel chapter 40 to 48, for example, and all of a sudden the temple takes on all of these uh, dimensions that are almost exaggerated. You see what I'm saying? Like these dimensions that are like, wow, what is Ezekiel talking about? It's like not, not a normal temple. It's because he's not talking about a normal temple. He's talking about the end time temple of God. And therefore, John the Revelator borrows a lot of material out of Ezekiel 40 and 48 to describe the heavenly temple because that's what Ezekiel saw. And so dispensationalists, sorry, will say, <laughs> will say that Ezekiel is talking about a literal rebuilt temple just right before uh, the uh, the end, the return of Christ, you know, it's the literal, physical, architectural temple that will be rebuilt and re-indwelt uh, by the Antichrist himself who will sit in a physical temple in Israel one day. Okay, so th- things like that. What we say is, no, I mean, that's not the way Ezekiel meant it. If you look at the dimensions and if you look at the details of what Ezekiel's talking about, he obviously has something supernatural in, in mind. And, of course, Revelation like I said, picks up on it. So that's just one example, but also like the land. You know, you go to Hebrews. What's the big passage on that? Hebrews 11, for example, verses, especially verses 13 to 16, is going to be crucial 
for understanding the fulfillment of the land promises, right? How that, what's remarkable is that we end up debating the land today. Uh, We end up debating the literal fulfillment of those things where the book of Hebrews actually tells you, no, from the beginning, what the patriarchs saw and what they believed in was not the typological land. They were looking for a higher country. They were looking for a city whose builder and foundations is God, right? Uh, the city that had foundations and whose builder is God. You see what I'm saying? They were already, by faith, looking for the antitype. They were not looking just to the typological uh, how do we know that for certain? Because what does the book of Hebrews say? If they were, they would have had opportunity to return to that physical, literal land, but they did not because that's not what they were looking for. You see what I'm saying? So, uh, clear as mud. You know, Chris Bess, I told this thing not to turn off, and it turned off. It's evidence that the robots are taking over. It didn't do what I told it to do. That's scary. It's like, no, you really meant... Like, turn off in 10 minutes or something, right? We'll look into it. <laughs> <laughs> I, to- I mean, I chose the option that says turn off when. Never. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the, that's the ghost of, uh, of uh, Steve Jobs coming back to, to haunt us, in a sense. Okay, so when we think about the Spirit's anointing, when you think about the Spirit's ministry, the other thing, brothers and sisters, if we have to talk about covenant, right? Uh, in one sense, the whole Bible, I just read this in a theology. I, I can't remember whose it was. Oh, whose was it that said that? And I thought it was really good. I think it was in a dictionary that I was reading. Maybe it's in one of my quotes. But uh, but basically what they're saying is that the whole Bible, they talk about vocab, talk about something you need to know, absolutely, is uh, the covenant, right, and eschatology. Eschatology, you finish it. Uh, what they're saying is that the whole Bible is essentially covenantal eschatology. I think that's a good way of putting it. You know what I'm saying? Because everything moves along these covenantal lines. So there, you Ezekiel chapter 36, just to see how the Spirit of God, when he comes upon Christ, what is he doing? See, I'm convinced that you know, like I said before, a controversial statement, people are still chewing chewing on it and thinking through it, that, that the Spirit is pure eschatology, that when the Spirit gets involved in the New Testament, it is solely for the purpose of advancing the eschatological cause of God. It is to show us things like what, what, what the kingdom is really going to be, what the temple is really all about, what the land is really all about, all of this thing, what the kingship is all about. Uh, the, the, the Spirit shows up at critical theophanic points in time in redemptive history to explain to us the true nature of what God is seeking to do through and in His Son. And uh, it's not just like the Spirit gets involved, you know, to, uh, uh, to beautify the story somehow or to, <laughs> you know, make some sort of sentimental contribution to the life of Christ. You know, it's, that's not it at all. Uh, the Spirit is on, uh, talk about covenant, the Spirit is on a covenantal mission. Remember? Uh, what was it? 48, 16 through 18. Remember there that the servant of the Lord, I think that's what most commentators conclude that it is, 
uh, the servant of the Lord is speaking, and he says that he was sent by God, presumably the Father, because he sends the Son, number one, the servant, and, he says, and his Spirit. So the Spirit and the Son are sent together for what purpose? Well, I don't know, Ezekiel 36, maybe? Um, somebody want to read that, verses 24 to 28. Who wants to read? Landon, can you read that, you there? Sure. Yeah, uh, verses 24 to 28. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers, so that you will be my people, and I will be your God. Yeah, that's right. So the Spirit is involved for the purpose of the new covenant. We know that. We understand the significance of that. Another very important passage would be Second uh, Corinthians, chapter three, verses one through well, uh, the whole, almost a, almost a whole thing, but really verses I don't know, let's say five through uh, through eighteen, talking about the work of the Spirit in the new covenant and what He's going to do, and ultimately you know, climaxing in the transformation of the believer into the very image of God, right? By the Spirit of God. That's a very, by the way, it's a very provocative passage because verses 16 to 18, uh, there, I made the case last time that there, the, the Jesus is called the Spirit because they have some form of functional unity going on. Okay, uh, but, but but at any rate, in other words, the Son, uh, at the very least that can be said is that the Son uh, and the Spirit work together to transform man into the image of God, okay? And that is a work of the Spirit as well. But as you can see, the Spirit shows up for the purpose of the new covenant. Of course, we know that. Now turn to Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 37. We're going somewhere uh, with all of this. The theology that emerges from all of this. See, now we're able to take all of these prophetic passages and kind of summarize them into a very concise statement about what they're... But at the time when these oracles were being unleashed, you know, these are extensive oracles about how God was going to bring this all to pass. Now, for us, it's easy to go back, look at the prophets, and go, oh yeah, of course, the new covenant, done. I mean, I know what they're saying. But they have to develop all of that in the way that they're initially conveying these things. So... Uh, verse 11 through 14. Somebody want to read that? Who's there? Chris, are you there? Matthews? Yeah. yeah? Uh, 37, 11 to 14. Yeah, that's right. And so, uh, again, the new covenant, I remember having a conversation with a brother and I said, you know, uh, the land, we're debating the land and he was coming from a not 
dispensational perspective, but he was just questioning, you know, like that's kind of what I've always been taught. Israel is going to be regathered into the land that was fulfilled in 1948, you know, and, and Israel went back to the land. That's the fulfillment of uh, Ezekiel's uh, prophecy. I said, no, I don't think so because they have the spirit of God. They're not going to have gay parade, pride parades in their streets. I mean, that cannot be what Ezekiel is talking about, okay? So anyway, a little exercised about that, but you can see why. Even our tour guide, you know, he's not a believer. You know what he tells us when we were down at the Dead Sea in, uh, in uh, um, uh, down at uh, uh, what they think is the old site of Sodom and Gomorrah. They said, yeah, that you know, God judged Sodom and Gomorrah, and, you know, the residents of Sodom all got up and moved to Tel Aviv. <laughs> he's a secular guy saying that's how immoral, you know, with the homosexuality and everything, it's one of the leading countries in the world, you know, in terms of gay pride and all of that, you know, just, uh, yeah, they just, you know, they're very uh, secular. <clears throat> A secularism has its consequences. Uh, but what I'm saying is that um, you can see here how the land and the new covenant intersect. And so... We have to start thinking a little different about how the land promises are fulfilled in conjunction with the new covenant. Uh, somehow. And so, um, you know, I think we have to start looking at the true typological significance that the land always had. And that's why a passage like, where am I at? Like Hebrews 11 is really critical. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think ultimately that the land is typological of heaven, and so it will be some sort of heavenly residence, right? And uh, that's, you know, in terms of our eschatology or my eschatology, that kind of has an already not yet fulfillment. So in one sense, we're already, like Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, uh, verse 19 and 20, you know, when he says that we are citizens of heaven, you know, in, in, in one sense. It's kind of like the imagery of the temple too, you know, the tabernacle, uh, that had major typological significance. So like in uh, Acts chapter 15, uh, when the apostle there quotes Amos 9 as the fact that the fact that the Gentiles are being saved and gathered into the church, that's the fulfillment of what Amos was talking about, that the tabernacle of David will be rebuilt one day. <laughs> he wasn't talking about a literal architectural structure. You see what I'm saying? He was talking about what that architectural structure was pointing towards, which was a spiritual organism a spiritual building of the Lord. You see, that's the way that uh, it works. So, yeah, yes, sir. Like the seed, right? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. That's a good one. That's First Peter, chapter two, nine through ten, right? And that has uh, major <laughs> significance for for the church, right? Uh, unless Peter exclusively meant to exclude Gentiles and only include Jews in what he was saying, which is kind of unthinkable. You know what I mean? So yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's kind of like this. It's like what I learned is that Old Testament. New Testament, 
and over the Old Testament laid a typical, uh, how do you spell typical? T-Y-P-I. Thank you. Because, is that how you spell it? I, I don't know. Whatever. So <laughs> typical, unless you're really, you know, uh, okay. But you know what I mean? It's almost like there was a typological layer that laid over the entire Old Testament. All of it. And so tell me one story of the Old, Tens- the Old Testament. David with Goliath, the conquest of Canaan, the building of the ark. Tower of Babel, building of the temple, wall of Jericho. All of those things are symbolic. The kingdom of Israel, Noah's Ark. All of those things are symbolic. It's not that they didn't have literal meaning, literal significance, and they didn't have a literal application. Of course, they served the purpose. How about the Levitical system? How about the high priest? How about the priesthood? How Adam. How about Eden? All of those things had a typological hermeneutic laying over them. And when we don't understand them, when we're looking at the Old Testament, uh, this is like, for example, the big error of theonomy. Is they don't understand that the theocracy itself falls underneath this typical function of the Old Testament. And that the Old Testament theocracy is not in place so that God was giving the entire world lessons on politics. That is not what the theocracy was for, okay? It served a eschatological, typological function and that the theocracy itself is gone. Just like the sacrifices are gone. Just like the high priest is gone. Just like the sacrificial system in its entirety, all of its feasts, everything, gone. Why? We talked about this somewhere in some place. But it's like the, the moon being outshined by the sun. Or in the na- in the words of uh, in the words of Second uh, Corinthians three, right? That 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 which had glory, no longer has any glory. The theocracy certainly certainly had glory. The Old Testament kingdom of God had glory. The Old Testament sacrificial system had glory. The Old Testament high priest had glory. But now those things no longer have any glory. Why? Because of the glory that outshines it. What does it say? I don't want to botch it. What does it say? For, uh, for, let's see here. But you see how deep the structures of this go. Verse 10. For indeed what had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. Precisely. So when the new covenant comes, there's nothing wrong with the old covenant. It's just that it's not as glorious as the new. So it doesn't shine anymore. Much as you want to hold on. You ever met those Christians that want to hold on to the like Old Testament feasts and stuff? <laughs> and I'm thinking like, in one sense, it's like, think about how insulting that is to Jesus. Here is the antitypical reality and fullness of those things, and you want to stare at the shadow. When, when the presence, the very, the very essence of those things is standing right in front of you, and you want to go back to looking at the shadow. That's not what's intended. Paul is telling us in 2 Corinthians, get away from that. You know, and the book of Hebrews, the entire book of Hebrews is written to move the people of God redemptively past all of that. 
and show that something vastly superior. Why do you think one of the crucial terms in the book of Hebrews is the word better over and over because there's a better king, a better priesthood, a better high priest, a better sacrifice. There's a better covenant, a better mediator. There's a better everything. And that is a work of the spirit. And uh, I know that you guys um, are, are a little bit like scratching your head. Like, what does this have to do with the spirit of Christ and, you know, the, the birth of, you know, baby Jesus and the manger and all of that? Uh, everything. Because um, what he came to do is he came exactly to fulfill all of this and to bring us into this, right? Or the, the eschatology of all this. That's what he came to do. Okay, so uh, one more thing. For example, Ezekiel 36. Uh, somebody else read that. Ezekiel 36, verse 33 through 36. KW there? Yeah, good. Yeah, uh, you can do a fascinating study just by studying what the Lord plants all over the prophets, the planting of the Lord, the Lord planted them, the Lord will plant you. Uh, the planting theology is all about God's, you know, uh, reconstituting his people and uh, all of it really fulfilled in the new covenant and in Christ and ultimately in heaven. And so the, the rebuilding of the waste places and all of that, a couple of things are going on there, by the way, you know, it uses the language of Genesis uh, where it talks about, you know, the, the, the earth was, uh, what, what does it say, uh, that was void, and what does it say, was formless and void, tohu bavohu, the Hebrew, it uses those Hebrew terms here to speak of the fact that Israel, because of its sin and because of its apostasy, has returned, in a sense, to a decreational state where it is back to a, a void and wasteland and need of a new move of the Spirit in order to recreate it back into Eden. You see what's going on there? See how brilliant these prophets were? Wow. So they use, they borrow the language of Genesis to apply that, and you see decreational language all over the prophets. Anybody testify to that? Anybody seen that? You saw that? What does that say? I'm glad you know. <laughs> I'm reaching in my, in my mind. Uh, yeah. But there are other passages that are very creational in their in their in their language. They talk about the sun not shining, the moon not shining, the stars not giving their light, almost going backwards in creation, almost an unraveling and an undoing of the created order until Israel understands that it's gone to a place of of, of chaos again and in need of the Spirit to revive them. Yes, sir? You have a verse there? Yeah. Ooh. Wow, there's a lot there, yeah. 
See, that's that avian imagery that we were talking about in terms of the spirit in Genesis 1-2, where it says the spirit was hovering over the face of the deep, right? That language of hovering, literally the fluttering of the wings. Uh, for some reason, God wants us to associate the spirit with some sort of bird-like or avian kind of you know, imagery uh, that's picked up again in the book of Exodus to speak of the Passover, when God hovers over the people. It's very interesting that the prophets do that. That's what I'm saying. It's like a lot of people ask me, you think they knew? Remember that question? How much did they knew? See, it's stuff like that that makes me think, I don't know, man. <laughs> I think they knew more than we think we, they knew. You know, I'm not saying that Moses would have said Jesus of Nazareth. You know? but, but I think they knew a lot more. And, and uh, I, I think that, you know, I mean, we are talking about you know, Moses, a guy that went up to you know, Mount Sinai and, you know, met with God. You know what I mean? You think he would have a little bit of insight into the Bible? Yeah, man. Yeah, absolutely. So um, let me read something. Can I read something? This is a, my notes that I wanted, that I really wanted. After all these Ezekiel passages, what it says, from the prophecies in Ezekiel, we can gain a perspective of the Spirit's mission in the life of Messiah He's the Davidic king who is the Messiah. He will replant the people of God, newly constituted and covenantally bound. Very important. The church arises out of the ashes and dead, of dead religion, ru- the ruined cities of apostate Israel. The Spirit works through Christ to revive the dead, to revive the hope of the people of God and resurrect them in the glory spirit and grant them a new land that is secure and safe from all their enemies. This is the planting of the Lord. God's people will be advanced forward beyond the realm of probation and beyond their conflicts in an Edenic state where the waste places are no more and everything is brought into the the sanctity of sanctuary life in Harmageddon, which is the mountain of God. Zion, the mountain of God's inheritance, uh, then I then I just have fun here. I said, this cosmic orology, uh, this is a term I dug up. Cause I thought, has anybody done mountain theology? And then I found this, you know, obscure thing online that said orology is like the theology of mountains. I said, perfect. That's what I need. It's exactly what I'm looking for. And, matter of fact, and I found a, uh, I found an entry in the Dictionary of Biblical Imagery edited by uh, Leland Reichand who gave this profound insight into the mountain theology of the Bible. Uh, because what I'm saying is that all the references to Zion, Zion is God's mountain, right? It's almost like the antithesis, of, if you would, of Sinai. Right? Where it's like Sinai, you know, was a fenced-off mountain where no one can approach. Matter of fact, the people didn't even want to approach. They were so scared, remember? They said, like, no more. Right? Like, we don't even want to hear the voice of God. We're so petrified, you know, of this mountain and what's going on. S- you know, Zion is the complete opposite. Is Zion is the place where all the nations will come streaming into it. So let me give you just a taste of this mountain theology. Uh, it says, almost from the beginning of the Bible, mountains are sites of transcendent spiritual experiences, encounters with God or appearances by God. Ezekiel 28 places the Garden of Eden on a mountain. Abraham shows his willingness to sacrifice Isaac and then encounters God on the mountain. God appears to Moses and speaks from the burning bush on Horeb, the mountain of God. That's Ezekiel 3. 
uh, excuse me, uh, Exodus 3. And he encounters Elijah on the same site. Most impressive of all is the experience of the Israelites at Sinai, Exodus 19, where Moses ascends in a cloud to meet God. A similar uh, picture emerges in the New Testament where Jesus is associated with mountains. Jesus uh, resorted to mountains to be alone, to pray, to teach his disciples. It was on a mountain that Jesus refuted Satan's temptation. He was also transfigured on a mountain, and he ascended from the Mount of Olives. So all over the Bible, you get this incredible uh, imagery of the mountains, or in other words, the glory spirit, the spirit of God, often typified by uh, the cloud of glory, is at the very summit of Zion, and uh, he gives us an earthly replica so that we can understand this in Eden, where Eden was on a mountain. It was God's sanctuary. It was God's dwelling place. Uh, it was where, you know, it was where the sanctuary of the temple of God was at, was at, was in Eden, seemingly, according to Ezekiel 28, on a mountain. Uh, uh, why? Because the mountain is very important for sovereign reign. Maybe we can end by going to Isaiah 4. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 4 uh, because this is uh, all important of what the Spirit is going to be communicating in and through Christ and the new covenant. Isaiah 4 is... um, Again, uh, just an amazing expression of God as the covenant king of heaven. Um, You see this here. Isaiah chapter 4, beginning (laughs) verse 1. For seven women will take hold of one man in that day, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious against the, the branches, the Messiah. Uh, the f- and the fruit of the earth will be the pride and the adornment of the survivors of Israel. It will come about that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, everyone who is recorded for life in Jerusalem. Uh, when the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the bloodshed of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning. By the way, that's that reference there to the Ruach of God. I, the, I think it is a, the, the Spirit of God, and uh, many commentators go that way, including probably the most significant uh, uh, commentator on Isaiah, which is Alec Mater. Uh He believes that this is a reference to the Holy Spirit himself, not to like a disposition, okay, or like uh, an attitude of judgment. No, no, he says this is the Spirit of God. He is the one bringing judgment, and he is the one bringing burning, and that reminds me of the... Spirit's ministry in the life of Jesus, where it says that he comes, right, in the Spirit of God, and his winnowing fork is with him, right, and he will, all of that, you know. Uh, and then it's, he'll baptize you with fire, you know, and um, I think that's involved. Then the Lord will create over the whole area of Mount Zion and over the, her assemblies a cloud by day, even smoke. What does that remind you of? Cloud by day, even smoke, Exodus, it's like an Exodus event. And the brightness of a flaming fire by night, that's an Exodus language, uh, for over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be uh, a shelter to give shade from the heat of the day and refuge and protect and protection from the storm and from the rain. So there's no question that what Jesus came to do, the branch, he's coming in a sense as like, uh, 
like the last exodus that is going to take place and lead his people out. You guys have been uh, very patient, very kind with me today. Uh, any questions regarding anything whatsoever? Yes, sir. What is that? Oh, orology. Yeah. It should be something like harmatology, too, because har is the Hebrew word for mountain. You know, it could have been something. I could just make one up. Like Paul makes up words. Why can't I make up a word? <laughs> right? Mountain theology. Look it up, man. Just dive in and, and, and look everywhere, and, and uh, you'll find that at the top of the mountain is Jesus Christ. You know, that he is uh, above all the highest mountains of the world. And, and, uh, and then, um, uh, so let me, let me just rattle off a couple things here just to get it on record. Because I wrote down bullet points here. Look at this, I'm working off my fancy iPad and everything. I got bullet points here uh, that I wanted to summarize. And I just talked about, like, how, how is the spirit of Christ connected to Christ? Uh, and points to Christ in the Old Testament. Okay, so I put down like things like uh, Ezekiel chapter 6, a comprehensive way by connecting the themes of glory, spirit, and Christ, right? Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, in the creation account where the spirit, Christ, and the Father work in harmony to create the cosmos to endow man with the image of God. And Oh, man, we don't have time to get into the Imago Dei, the spirit, and Christ, and all of that. Um, uh, I, I'm just kind of trying to lay the groundwork that in the Old Testament, what you find in the OT is this extensive theology of, of, of the Messiah and how that relates to what the Spirit is going to do eschatologically. Uh, in the calling of Moses, as the Spirit endowed him as the Exodus leader, prophet, mediator. By the way, thank God for hyphenation. Uh, Joseph Urban has told me that in Spanish, one of the struggles he has and frustrations is that in Spanish, you can't use hyphenated words. They don't really come across. You know, like we say something like glory. Uh, I'm supposed to be able to spell that. Glory spirit, right? To kind of to stress, like, you know, the, the, the connection between those, you know, things. You know, glory spirit is kind of like we don't want to, s- when we don't want to say like the spirit, uh, like the glory of the spirit, right? Because it's not, we're not talking about the glory of the spirit. We're talking about the glory spirit, right? That he is the glorious spirit or something like that, right? Or we can say something like the mediator king, right? I love hyphenation. Like all my notes are filled with hyphenated words. Uh, it's fun. I just, I just really like it um, because it sums things up, you know. Uh, also in his kingly anointed, uh, the kingly anointing of David, 2 Samuel 7, Psalm 2, Isaiah 11. All those are pictures of the spirit in Christ. Uh, in the priestly vestments and in the duties of the of the high priest and the sacrificial system where the high priest and others are endowed with the glory spirit symbolically looking forward to the limitless supply of the spirit in the Melchizedekian, you know what I mean, Melchizedek, uh, which is Christ. Over and over, I mean, there's about 10 more things here that we don't have time for because i got about 10 seconds. So any questions, comments, anything? Well, yeah, like the, the, the fulfillment of Melchizedek, yeah. We've been there before. No wonder you pointed at God. That's not what you said before. <laughs> no, I don't think Melchizedek is Christ in Genesis 14. Uh, I think he is a type of Christ, right? Amen. Let's go to worship before I get any deeper. Amen.